You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Alyssa, welcome to the Big Trade series. Uh, we've been having a lot of correspondence. We've been sharing some interesting quotes with each other. Why don't you share share a bit about yourself to the audience? Sure. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for having me on your show. I'm excited to uh, try out my first podcast with you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so, my name is Alyssa Melakina. I am a women's international and FIDE master in chess, and I'm also currently a corporate litigator practicing in New York City. In terms of chess, I mean, you've been learning that for quite some time. What what can someone extract in terms of thinking about strategy as far as chess is concerned and how that's related to the various different tactics? One of the things that tends to confuse me is I, I'm imagining that you can only think about several steps ahead. And how does that allow you to incorporate that into a strategy when playing chess? Or maybe you're seeing something different that you could share to the audience. Sure. Well, let me break down your question a bit because you mentioned a few concepts, strategy, tactics, and thinking ahead. Mm -hmm. And those are all a big part of chess and they come into play in different ways. And there's also a bit of confusion between strategy and tactics because the concepts are used interchangeably sometimes, but they're quite different. So when when you talk about tactics with a chess player, what we think of immediately are, you know, combination sequences, something like a two-move checkmate. Uh, I don't know if your audience has experience in chess, but if they study chess puzzles, uh, very basic chess puzzles will be find the checkmate in two or find the way to win the queen. So those are tactics, and those are very short-term sequences of moves, usually a four-sequence of moves, especially if it's a checkmate, it's usually going to be check. Uh, it's going to force a king move. Another check will lead to checkmate. And uh, strategy is different because strategy is the overarching plan of the game. And it's designed to achieve the ultimate goal, which is uh, usually going to be checkmate, of course. But you can have um, different strategic goals to achieve mini goals. And tactics can be part of your overall strategy. So uh, a very basic strategy that some players can have in their approach to the game is they perceive themselves as more aggressive or attacking players. So then part of their strategy will be to pick opening sequence of moves that will give them the type of aggressive positions they're comfortable in and within those positions more tactics will arise as opposed to a player who likes more closed slow positional styles and so their strategy will involve choosing different opening sequences and then different ways of playing or trying to psych out their opponents. To what extent are you thinking about like the end game here from basically the first several moves? Or is that next to impossible based on the number of possible permutations that could occur between the beginning and the middle game as well? Right. And that goes to the other concept you mentioned about uh, thinking in terms of steps ahead. Mm. So when you conceive of a chess game, the end goal is always the same. It's to win. It's by checkmate. Um, Or you can win by forcing your opponent to resign if you win a lot of material. And in fact, in high-level games, the chess game will rarely conclude with the resignation. Usually someone will win a decisive amount of material, like 
a rook or a queen or even, you know, a knight or a bishop. And that will force the other player to resign because they know that if they played on at this high level, they're going to lose eventually. So they would resign as a sign of respect and as a practical matter. Um, so that's your overall psychological goal in terms of seeing ahead in a chess game. But when you're actually at the board and analyzing moves, um, a good player would be able to see, I would say, maybe between four to six moves ahead, just mm -hmm. based purely on calculating brute force. You know, I go here, he goes there. But that doesn't necessarily make you a good chess player because, like you mentioned in chess, there are so many possibilities. Uh, I think a figure that people like to use is that the number of legal moves in the chess game exceeds the number of atoms in the universe or the, the number of possible positions that can arise. So it's obviously impossible to calculate all possible lines. So the better player will be the one who can evaluate the tree variation better than his opponent. So both opponents can maybe see four moves ahead, but how do you decide to go with that move versus a different move that will lead to a different line? In terms of artificial intelligence these days and like the the algorithms that are used to play chess, I, I hear they're doing um, f like fantastic and very competitive relative to grandmasters. How do you like approach playing um, a computer as opposed to a human being. I, I'm sure it has to be a different approach right from the get-go. Absolutely. Computers have changed uh, the way chess is played, both good and bad. Uh, so maybe 10 or 15 years ago, uh, humans were still competitive with computers. Uh, we had that famous match, Kaspara versus IBM, and mm -hmm. you know, he was still able to keep up with a computer, but nowadays computers are vastly stronger than a human chess player, and they will win in the match. So uh, there have been some advancements to counter playing with a computer, but in using technology. So Gary Kasparov has formed this concept of advanced chess where you have a human and a computer paired against another human and a computer. And the idea is that the computers will neutralize each other out and then it'll depend on the creativity of the human in being paired with the computer. Mm. So, so that's one way and that's just because the computers are so strong that um, playing against the highest level will unfortunately be futile. But using computers has transformed the way that chess is played and studied. So back in the day, you didn't have computers checking lines, analyzing lines. Um, back in the day, uh, you know, like the matches that Fisher played and so forth, after they reached a certain move in the game, move 40, they would adjourn the game and then they would bring in their coaches and seconds and analyze the position and then come back the next day and continue the game. And of course you can't do that these days because everyone would just use a computer and there would be no point. But what you do now is you use computers as part of your home preparation in order to vet openings and sequences. And so when you come to the board, you're more prepared. You're not going to lose in the first 20 moves of the game usually because you would have checked all of these lines with the computer at home. Right. So that definitely helps advance um, chess theory and it helps you learn the game quicker. But the flip side of that and what we see happening at the higher levels is that uh, it's making the games more dry and slow because all of that creativity that used to come with chess, all those sacrifices and attacking games, you know, if your opponent is prepared for it, it won't work. So now you see people playing a bit safer. 
I, I tend to, I'm, as you know, I've been studying a lot of chess as of late. And ultimately, one of the, the rationales for that is just to have a better logic in terms of the way that I'm thinking, constructing better strategies and tactics as far as business is concerned. Ultimately, you're competing against humans from that regard. But basically, I, I think that it isn't there, could one just not rationalize by saying, hey, ultimately, this is a human on human endeavor. And if all the skills that you're harnessing is to compete against humans, at least for the time being, then that's probably the, the real value of this pursuit. Yes, absolutely. And I'm very happy to hear that you're learning chess and we welcome <laughs> you to the chess world with open arms. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely happy to have chess players on board. And th there's a lot of value in chess outside of chess. And within chess, it is still a competitive endeavor, as you know. So despite the influence of computers, when you go to a tournament, you are playing against uh, another human. So all of that strategy that you're learning at home will definitely translate over the board and your your opponent is not going to play perfectly or like a computer so there there definitely is room to outsmart your opponent in that sense and it it definitely depends on being aware of the logical structures of the position and the the sequences of the moves and how they all interplay and that helps you on the board and off the board right so let's switch topics for a second i i had um one of the companies that's near and dear to me is Take-Two Interactive, which is the maker of uh, Grand Theft Auto. I believe that you were involved in a case involving a celebrity named Lindsay Lohan. I don't know to what extent that you could share about that, but I don't know if there's any extrapolations that we can have in terms of chess and how you address that case. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, my firm handles a lot of intellectual property litigation. Uh, right. For and one of the cases I worked on was for a client that made the video Grand Theft Auto. Um, so that was an interesting case because that was an appeal that we were taking from the state court. And I can only comment on what's in the public record and what the the final decision was. But in in general, as applied to this case versus uh, as applied to other cases, I find that litigation strategy is very similar to gaming strategy that would underlie a competitive game like chess. And a lot of the litigation is anticipating what the other side knows and what procedural devices they're going to use. And I think of procedural devices in litigation, like filing certain motions um, to be similar to tactics within chess. Mm -hmm. And then each side has their own strategy of, you know, which facts they're going to focus on, how they're going to raise these facts to the witnesses, what exactly they're going to introduce into the record for evidence and how that's going to play out. And um, they're either aiming for a victory in the courtroom or aiming to get leverage in settlement. But there, there's definitely that interplay. In terms of litigation, though, aren't there way more possible combinations based on the bureaucratic nature of various different laws? Right. I would say the variation is more due to 
unpredictability of what the judge will decide in the mm. particular instance. So both the the law is the same for both sides, even though the, unless the issue is a conflict of laws issue in terms of which law do we apply in this situation, but usually that will be resolved. So you're operating within the same legal framework, but then you're not exactly sure, you know, how is the judge going to interpret my legal argument? How are they going to rule and what will be the effect of this? And that's what you're trying to to operate is within that framework. Right, right. So let's switch to another topic is I had the opportunity to listen to what Peter Thiel has been talking about in terms of his book, Zero to One. And one of the things, because he's quite the avid chess player as well, he talks about uh, opening moves and first mm-hmm. mover advantage, particularly in terms of networks. I don't know if you have any ideas in regards to that. Right. Well, I've mentioned openings um, a, a few times already, and the opening sequences um, just—it's basically the theory of chess. It's the first few moves that have been vetted throughout time and through experience, and they have different names. A common name for one opening is the Sicilian defense. Right. A lot of people will hear about it. it's when white moves. Um, their king's pawn up to e4. Black replies with pawn to c5. That's the starting position of the Sicilian defense opening, mm. and some people think that white has the advantage because they are the first player to move and so they can almost decide on the opening and if you decide the opening then you can shift the game into your territory right so theoretically it may be the case that white does have a slight edge mm-hmm. but in practice black has devised ways to counter that and that's why you see um, all of these openings um, such as the Sicilian defense are playing indirectly against white's central control. So white opens with the central pawn and instead of mimicking that to go into a symmetrical position where white's first move advantage really would stand out, they go into these more circuitous openings where they're playing indirectly against white. So that should neutralize the first move advantage somewhat. What I heard in terms of um, business strategy, for example, is um, take into account that white is effectively like a first mover advantage. But the true benefit of that is that if you're able to establish, um, you know, various different positional advantages, say, for example, obtaining more dominance in the center of the board, that could be very analogous to businesses that are able to penetrate markets very quickly. Say, for example, a company like Facebook, which was able to get their initial like 80% of uh, Harvard students, for example, to be utilizing their network and then ultimately go on to capture tons of market share for the rest of the world. I, I thought that was a very interesting uh, parallel that was introduced in terms of first mover, uh, establishing the network, what we would call like nodes as far as networks are concerned, which is putting various different pieces that can allow you to sustain that advantage for a long period of time. Right. That's true, assuming that you use the first move in the correct way, because if yeah. you waste your first move with white by moving a flank pawn, like one of the rook pawns up, then there's no advantage. But if you use it in the right way to take control of the center, as you pointed out, 
then that will absolutely help because taking control of the center is one of the core principles of chess. And in fact, a lot of mistakes that I see beginners make is they move without purpose. They'll just, you know, see that their pawn can move up two squares and they'll do it without thinking, why am I moving the pawn here and what purpose is it serving? And if you're not developing your pieces and developing as a concept in chess that we use to describe the deployment of pieces to control the center. So if you're not developing your pieces correctly, then you're wasting moves and then your your opponent will absolutely take advantage of that. In terms of wasting moves, that's also one thing that I've been learning is about like uh, trying to somehow sustain an optimization of um, moves. What What is involved in terms of coming up with you know, getting your pieces into the ideal positions without um, wasting too many moves, I guess, initially. That That's all based on this underlying principle of every move has to have a purpose. Mm. And a lot of beginner players, they get frustrated because they think that the immediate purpose of chess is to checkmate or win material. But if you're, you're playing against someone who knows a bit about chess, you're not going to be able to checkmate them so quickly. So then you have to come up with other purposes for the pieces and what are they going to do in the meantime. So one purpose is to develop your pieces to control the center, as we discussed. And mm-hmm. then once they're out there, then you know the next question is, what do you do? And then that's when you get into more complex chess strategy. You start to look at the strengths you have in your own position, the weaknesses that your opponent has. And then you think, how do I exploit their weaknesses? So maybe they have a pawn that's unprotected, mm-hmm. and you attack that pawn, and you think, you know, how can I win that pawn? And then once you win that pawn, then your material up, then there's different strategy for converting the advantage of being up material. So this is what I mean when I say that chess is full of a conglomerate of, of strategies leading to the ultimate goal. Have you noticed a lot of success in your play in regards to like sacrifices or gambits? I definitely like playing gambits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny because I started out as a player who played very symmetrical, dry, slow openings. You know, you wouldn't get an advantage and then would end up in an end game, which is where the queens are off the board and it's just few material left. Um, and then as, as I got older and started playing more tournaments, um, I picked up gambits here and there and I noticed that they are a lot more creative than the openings that I was playing. And it, it definitely makes the game more enjoyable and they're more of a practical weapon. So you don't see gambits played as much on the high level. So the recent world championship match that took place in New York City between Magnus Carlsen and Sergei Karyakin, there were no gambits played because as I mentioned about computers, you know, computers will usually vet these gambit lines if you sacrifice material. Um, mm. These players are too well prepared. So gambits work better, I'd say, at lower levels, but even at my level of chess, which is the, like the master level beneath the grandmaster level, um, it, you, you can definitely catch your opponent off guard in those. In term, a lot of people refer to chess as in like the truth obviously is always indicated within the board. But as you know, like in business or litigation, there's aspects of like, you know, deception and being stealthy in terms of how you're trying to approach a particular, like maybe the introduction of a product or service or something or going up to compete with various different competitors. How do you, how do you deceive your opponent when 
everything is there, obviously, and then obviously your opponent can see some of these things, but maybe sometimes they're not seeing things. How, how do you do that effectively in, in chess? Yeah, th that's an interesting question, because chess is a game of perfect information at right. the starting position, if you think about it. So everyone starts with the same number of pieces. Um, you're playing within the confined space of the 64 squares of the board. Everyone knows how the pieces are moving and the rules are the same for both players. So I think your question can um, even be restated as how does one get an advantage or how does one outsmart an opponent considering that everyone starts with the same number of pieces and the same basic knowledge. Right. And, and you know, if, if you can see ahead in the position, why is it that your opponent can also see ahead in, in the same position and then predict, predict your own moves? So that, that goes to each player has their own set of experiences and their own unique strategies. Um, and that's why a lot of players try to get imbalanced positions, either through a sacrifice or through a, a gambit line, where each side has a different advantage. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you see games where it's an attacking race. So one player attacks on the king side, the other player attacks on the queen side, and then it's whoever gets to the other side first. And you know what your opponent is doing, so you're not going to deceive them into thinking you're not attacking when you are, but you, it's more about deploying strategies that they wouldn't expect and utilizing resources in the way they wouldn't expect. Right. I've been exploring about the whole process of castling, and a great analogy in business for that is kind of like revamping assets that you already have but from a perspective of almost like repackaging the pre-existing assets and then trying to leverage off of that. What can people understand about like castling? Because suddenly you can, I guess you can uh, obtain a very defensive position or put your king in a different state by just uh, going through that move. Yes, castling is a very important move, a very important developing move. And when chess first started, it wasn't possible to castle which is when you take your king and you can move it over two squares and then have your rook jump over the king. And so it's like basically you're making almost three or four moves within one to get this defensive position. And I think that this innovation of castling was invented because if the king is stuck in the center without the protection of having it castled, it's privy to being attacked. And a lot of games can end quickly if your king is unprotected and in the center and falls prey to an attack. So players that don't castle and waste time with non-developing moves often lose quickly because their king is unprotected. So we're already near the end of this podcast, but like, who are some of your chess heroes that people can learn a lot from? Sure. Well, I hope your audience has heard of Judith Polger, who is one of the trailblazers um, in chess. Uh, for women, she was one of the few, I think the only top 10 uh, player who's also a female. Um, and she was she's one of the top grandmasters, broke 2,700. So she she's a real hero for all of us, but not, not just for women players, for everyone. She has a great attacking style, a great exciting style. And there's also, of course, Bobby Fischer, who... I'm sure we've all heard of. Yeah. He he did a lot for chess, even though he has a questionable reputation based on things that he said and did later on in his life. But he was the one to really put chess 
on the map in the U.S. And then after him, chess became a, a viable profession in the U.S. because in other countries, chess is subsidized by the government or, right. you know, players have sponsors, players have higher profiles. Chess is not as mainstream in the U.S. Um, and without Bobby Fischer, I do not think we would have the same level of competition here. In, in terms of that, like I noticed that there, I, I guess from a business perspective is that even if you were to reach like a grandmaster state, I'm assuming that there's not that much money ultimately that you can make by doing this. Why do you think that's the case? Because, you know, it seems like a, a pretty hard profession to be competitive in and there's so much other competitors as well. So it, you would imagine that something as rigorous as, as chess would get it, you would find the same kind of financial rewards of, um, say, for example, excelling in that profession. Yeah, you would hope that people would appreciate um, more of what chess has to offer. Uh, but if you're one of the top elite players like Magnus Carlsen or right. you know those players that are at the top 10 in the world, they do have private sponsorships and they are pretty well off. But for everyone else who doesn't make it to the top, it is very difficult to make money from chess. And in fact, when I play chess competitively, it's always a losing proposition for me financially because of the cost to enter a tournament, to travel to the tournament, the time it takes to play a tournament and chess tournaments, you know, they last a week or so. And, right, you know, right. one game is six hours. I think part of the problem with all of this is that chess is considered a bit erudite. It's not accessible to everyone. And it's, it's difficult to appreciate everything that goes on in high-level chess. So, I mean, these guys are playing for six hours, and you, you really have to know a certain level of chess in order to appreciate all of the intricacies. Mm -hmm. Now, if you know basically how to play, um, what you can do now is follow the commentary, and there's this innovation in chess where there's um, you know live commentators like there would be on the sports broadcast. And you can follow that and follow along with the game. But part of it, I think, is, you know, chess games, they're too long right. like for six hours and they're not keeping up with the times. And also chess personalities need to step up and uh, improve their profile. A lot of chess players keep to themselves. And when when they talk, it, it's all about chess. And I think there there's this missing gap between relating chess to real life. And that's part of the disconnect. Thank you, Alyssa, for coming on to the Big Trade Series. Thanks so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.